and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this week's episode, we look at all things supernatural. We talked to Kathleen Crowley of Mostly Ghostly. Some of you may remember the wonderful festival experience at Sorby Castle last year, so we get a little bit more behind the scenes of their work about the most haunted theatre in Scotland, about putting together the tours, but very specifically about a new project that they're cooking up with the festival. We talked to Edward Parnell about writing his second book, Ghostland, in which he found himself on the road to Dumfries and Galloway in pursuit of The Wicker Man. But first, Karen Campbell. Now, Karen Campbell is the author of seven novels, but here we're really speaking about the commission that Adrian Turpin and the festival team put to her to write a story for their fabulous suite of new pieces that they're putting out on the website, of which this podcast is one. But Karen was, was given the challenge to write a short story that could either be a crime story or the supernatural. And despite she she told me never having written a supernatural story and being a bit of a feardy cat, that's exactly what she decided to do, inspired by the martyr stake. I started off by asking Karen a bit more about the commission. So I've been finding it quite hard to write at the moment. Getting a commission for a story that's something I wouldn't normally have thought about was a really good, almost like a cold shower, and it got me writing again. So I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that. And the brief from Adrian was quite loose in terms of something maybe set in this area and a ghost story or something supernatural, which isn't what I normally write. So that's always good for a writer to, to be challenged. And I thought, well, to be honest, I'm a big fear to I don't like getting scared. I don't like ghost stories that, that, that kind of bow out and, and, you know, frighten you. But I do like things that unsettle you or things that are spooky but melancholy and, and that sense of the, the past bleeding into the present in, in ways that just kind of give you that wee shiver without, you know, being sort of nightmare and Elm Street about it. So mm-hmm. I started to think, well, where in, in sort of the precinct gallery area could I think of that is just a place that's quite atmospheric because I always find place is a good starting point if I don't have an idea often just an environment will, will trigger a feeling and then I can pick something from there and I'd been doing research for a, a novel that I've just finished set in the southwest of Scotland and I'd been visiting various places like um, St Ninian's Cave and Whithorn Abbey and, and all that kind of stuff and right away one of the places I'd visited kind of popped into my mind and it was the Martyr Stake, which of mm-hmm. course conveniently happens to be in Wigton itself, which which wasn't <laughs> contrived. It was just like, oh, this is perfect. And I think often when you write, serendipity happens where one idea will suddenly, you know, almost solve lots of problems. And I thought, oh, great. It's it's a place of already research because obviously you kind of get there at the moment. It's somewhere that's really atmospheric. It's imbued with tragedy and a deeply sad an angry history as well about women that were, I know men covenanters died as well, but at the martyr's sake, it was two female covenanters, one who was just a teenager that were basically drowned because they wouldn't, you know, change the way they professed their, their faith. And from there, I just started to think what voice will tell this story. And I didn't want it to be the, the actual martyrs themselves because I felt they had a really grisly end. I didn't want to dwell on that. Sometimes a mood or a voice is right and sometimes it isn't. I had an idea for, it's going to be a ghost story, but it's about a bunch of women ghosts who basically hang about the martyr stake of an <laughs> evening because they find the churchyard a bit constrictive. And actually, there's still a lot of bitchiness in the churchyard and the covenanters are the worst. They're very pious and they're moaning about stuff all the time. So it's a bit of freedom for these women ghosts to mm-hmm. come down to the martyr stake and watch the world go by and they can't see the world properly. Everything's kind of a bit vague and hazy, but if they work together, they find they've got enough energy to 
literally propel themselves forwards a wee bit. So from the churchyard to the martyr stake isn't far. But it's far enough that they're, they're kind of seeing an expanse of the world that mm-hmm. is mostly forgotten to them. So that mm-hmm. was the premise to begin this story. Tell us this, there's a peppering of real women in there. How did you go about encountering those those real figures? You know, I find when I write something, ideas just kind of whiz in and you don't always know where they came from, but they seem to be right at that moment. And it's just your subconscious going, oh, I mind we've got this bit buried away here and we've got this nugget that you already know. And I knew that I'd remember seeing a leaflet that Reading Lasses, the bookshop in Wigton, had produced. And it was a trail set around Wigton and it marked various houses or establishments that women of note through history had lived in or you know been involved with in, in Wigton. And it was this kind of thing of, again, I guess, giving voice to hidden voices and, and people that maybe weren't considered notable, but actually are if we, you know, we bother to learn a bit about them. So I tried to get my hand on that leaflet, couldn't find it, got in touch with um, Sarah Sheridan because he said that she actually had it a copy and she'd given it to Glasgow Women's Library when she finished her own research. So I went onto their website. Sadly, again, you can't go to the library, which is an amazing place. Lo and behold, they actually had the leaflet there in their archives. So I was able to get that leaflet and just get a few of those names. So there's um, Dr. Mary Broadfoot Walker, who was a real doctor that lived in Wigton. And she's one of the voices. There was the woman who was the matron of the prison from like the 1700s. So she's one of the voices. But there was various other voices that aren't at all connected to reality. But the nice thing about writing is that there's no real rules so you can take a wee bit of truth and a wee bit of fiction and a wee bit mm-hmm. of speculation and just kind of knit them all together but I wanted to have a cacophony of different voices. I had this idea and I think I see it in the story of this kind of ghostly snowball. It's like they, they gather momentum as they go and different voices come in at different points. I'm a great fan of the novel Lincoln and the Bardle by George Saunders. It's about lots of voices in a churchyard. Again, as I was writing and these voices were coming in, I thought well rather than try and give them all separate stories let's just go with that. It's just fragments of you don't always know who's talking at any one time but it gives that collective sense of troubled souls I suppose but also people trying to vie for attention and what's important to them might not be important to someone else and it allowed you to have a bit of fun too because I had this idea of cluster of, of ghosts and they kind of mill about the martyr stake as if it's a, a maypole almost mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and one of it I wanted to talk about you know witches that's a big topic in terms of, of women and ghosts and voices that were silenced I have one of the ghosts who's a flaming Janet and the other ghosts keep her on the outside of the circle because she smells of ash mm-hmm. and she's she's eye very hot because she's like she's burning <laughs> with rage all the time so that was quite funny for me just to experiment and, and you know, do little vignettes almost of people. It felt almost quite theatrical. Like it, it felt like a very, it would have been a fun piece to write. Was it fun to write? I always like to try and write different things. You know, I, I wrote four novels set in, in the world of the police, but I've written another four that aren't. And I like to try and do different stuff, just things that interest me and things that keep me fresh. Um, and the good thing about doing a short story and also the fact it's spooky there's basically no rules at all. You can go anywhere and do anything with it. You can have something that in one, that's what I love about short stories, that the mood can turn on a flick of a coin. So you can have real pathos in one second and then the very next you can inject a wee sharp bit of humour that almost underlines the pathos, but it changes the mood as well. So having all these different voices just allowed me totally to have fun and see where it took me. Um, What was it like for you writing so close to home? 
because your last novel was um, set in, in Tuscany and this is really right on your doorstep. How did that feel? I, I think it was probably written in a response to having spent four years writing a, a novel set in Italy during World War Two called The Sound of the Hours and it took me, I would say, two to three years of research, another couple of years to write. I had to go back and forth to Italy a few times. Oh, poor you. I know, it was onerous, but I made myself do it. Um, <laughs> got to suffer for your art. Um, but, you know, I was so immersed in, in that period and uh, everything about it was remote to my experience, the, the country, the you know experience of war, all of that. So when I'd finished that book, I was, I think, subconsciously looking for something much closer to home. And I just felt... We moved down from Glasgow to, I live in Gatehouse now in the southwest, seven, eight years ago. And, you know, I've got to know a fair bit of, of roundabout me, but I find now, unless I've got friends or family coming to visit, we don't really go out and explore things that are on our doorstep, especially mm-hmm. places like St Ninian's Cave and Whithorn. I knew of them, but I'd never been to them. And I thought, I wonder if I can write a story based here, because it's a kind of hidden and a wee bit forgotten corner of the world in Scotland mm-hmm. and beyond. So... Mm-hmm. That was one reason I wanted to write about it, but also I wanted to explore what was on my doorstep. When I started to research, I, I learned that in the medieval times, there was you know a lot of pilgrimage came down here, lepers, thinking they might be cured at some of the wells en route. King James came down to Whithorn Abbey, St. Ninian's Cave as well, you know, the birth of Christianity, all of that. I thought, there's, there's so much history here. Mm-hmm. Can I write a novel here? But I knew I didn't want to write history. I think I had scunnered myself with it. <laughs> history doing the Italian one. So mm-hmm. I thought, what kind of contemporary story could I set against this rich historical mm-hmm. backdrop? And um, I, for a long time, wanted to write about the experience of being homeless, a part of society that are marginalised literally and physically. Um, and mm-hmm. it just was something that interested me. So I came up with this idea of writing a novel about a homeless woman who's from this part of southwest Scotland. She's currently in Glasgow. Something happens to trigger her wanting to return back to where she she came from. And so the whole novel is her kind of pilgrimage along this old route of coming back to where she escaped, if you like, Mm -hmm, from. mm -hmm. And and I tell the story in wee fragments of flashback about why she left in the first place. But it allowed me to explore what was on my doorstep. And what was really nice is I was able to go out every day and visit. And I could go home that night and it was really fresh and write exactly how the, the stones on the beach fell and the wee cairns and what the crack into the cave was like. And so it made everything really fresh and immediate. And I think it was what I needed after being immersed for so long in, in the Italian past. My final question is um, just, do you believe in ghosts? Um, yeah. I don't think so. I think when I was younger, I did. But now I think I don't believe in them. I think I believe less in sort of supernatural and spiritual things and more in, yeah, just you know, the world itself is probably enough and, and we can all just learn lessons, I guess, in, in how we behave and interact just from being humans. I don't think mm-hmm. we, we need to have messages from beyond to, to help mm-hmm. us. So I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose there's always like our energies left behind because I do find, you know, place and landscape really powerful and I do mm-hmm. feel sometimes mm-hmm. that you can sense the other footsteps that have been here, but that mm-hmm. could just be my imagination. I've, I've never... I've never had a sort of spooky moment that's made me think, oh, that, you know, there's mm-hmm. something trying to communicate. Yeah, I there's think another it's, world. Yeah. It's me trying to interrogate what used to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And I love, you know, the way Ali Smith writes is uh, how to be both that mm-hmm. novel where part, mm-hmm. part of it's set in Renaissance Italy and part of it's yeah, in the modern day. The and, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a scene where she, there's a mum and daughter and they're talking about being in a place where they'd been there 40 years ago during the war 
they would have been shocked because that's what happened at that moment at that wall which is now a cafe and it's like all the things that have ever happened in one place Um, that wall has seen gosh yeah and I guess that's what this short story in its wee tiny way was was trying to condense into a, a few pages as well Thank you so much to Karen for giving us her time to tell us all about that brilliant commission. The Ghost of Wigtown is available on the Wigtown Book Festival website at wigtownbookfestival.com and I would urge you all to rush over there and read it. It's really, really good. Edward Parnell is the author of two books, uh, the first of which is a wonderful novel called The Listeners, which came out in 2014. And the second, uh, Ghostland, is a really moving exploration of what has haunted our writers and artists and what haunts Ed himself. What could you do with non-fiction that couldn't happen in writing a novel? Well, I suppose in a novel, maybe you're doing the same things. There's more guardedness about it because you, you might be talking about the same things and you might be kind of writing kind of bits that are slightly autobiographical but it's it's disguised in that it's you you can hide behind your characters and the different situations and things whereas I suppose in Ghostland that's that's kind of quite an honest book it's kind of part memoir so a lot of it's about my my family and growing up so that stuff suddenly you're really confronting it in a raw state so that's a little bit different I think. I'm aware that a couple of different writers kind of stock the work or ha- maybe haunt you I guess <laughs> M.R. James and around yeah. Walter de la Mare and, and, and Ilk. When did you first engage with them I guess as a reader? I think with M.R. James so James is probably the, the most prevalent character throughout Ghostland. He's this Victorian-born son of a vicar who then becomes an academic. He becomes provost at King's College in Cambridge and Eton. But also in his spare time as a thing to amuse his peers, he wrote this amazing selection of around about 30-odd ghost stories. Like a lot of the things that I talk about in Ghostland, I kind of came to him through the TV adaptation. Um, and this seems to be a bit of a thing because lots of the other kind of books and things that I talk about, actually, they probably had weird 1980s or 1970s TV adaptations that I caught as a kid. And with James, it was definitely, and I talk about it in the book, coming home, probably slightly the, the worse for drink on a Christmas Eve flicked through the channels and found this thing just starting, oh, a ghost story, M.R. James, called Lost Hearts. And it's it's one of James's creepiest stories. And I think the TV adaptation in which these two murdered ghost children are there in front of you on the screen in this kind of pallid grey skin and these razor sharp nails, that was my introduction and really struck me. I guess that encouraged me to go and read James after that. I don't think I'd read him as a kid. I think that was definitely my introduction. Walter de la Mare, I was certainly aware of the poem The Listeners, which is very gothic and has this setting of this abandoned house in the woods that's kind of dilapidated, falling apart, may or may not be haunted or at least have a kind of trace of memory around it. That was the setting that was in my head for my novel. Delamere also is a brilliant writer of these eerie stories. They're more psychological than James's, in which there are, I guess, physical presences of medieval demons and, and various different horrors. He's, he's quite a touchy-feely writer, whereas Delamere, you're never quite sure if the, the horrors are much more psychological, much more in the heads of the protagonists. Yeah, both very different writers, but both two of my favourite now. You touched there, um, Ed, on the research. It seems like it took you all over the UK. It's all sort of UK based. I, I went to Scotland, Dumfries and Galloway and 
I wanted to talk about The Wicker Man, which was something that, like lots of people, I'd seen as a kid and it had really stuck with me. And lots of this book is kind of about my revisiting those childhood engagement with the weird and the eerie. So it, it felt important to talk about The Wicker Man. And I'd been to Kakubre before and sort of realised that it, you know, it, it's used as a setting for some of the bits where Edward Woodward's character is running around the little passageways and lanes looking for the, the missing child. So I, I wanted to go up there again and properly visit the locations that make up the kind of mythical Summer Isle, um, which are obviously all just places that are dotted around that coastland and slightly inland. So it's incredible to me how you watch that film and you buy into the fact you're on an island, but of course there is no such island and, and none of it really was filmed on an island other than a few of the kind of aerial shots at the beginning, which I think were over Mole. The Wicker Man kind of drew me there, but then obviously there was Burns Country nearby and that felt interesting and important to look at as well briefly. Yeah, yeah Tam, Tam O'Shanter is a big part of that chapter as well. It's fascinating to me that idea of literary pilgrimage. And I know that in this chapter that you'd mentioned, you know, you were a little bit worried about shattering the spell of, yeah. of what, your, what your kind of summer isle was like. Why do you think we're drawn to film locations and places where writers lived and died? Obviously, I'm you know, in the book, I'm talking about lots of people, a lot of the characters, involved, the, the writers involved in it are Victorian Edwardian writers. So other than, you know, reading their biographies or reading other works about them, you're kind of struggling to connect in, in, on a kind of real level in, in some way. So one of the things I kind of thought I could do was at least visit places where they'd been, where they might have been inspired by, you know, to write some of their stories. I guess it's some sort of connection that you hope that you're seeing a brief window into what their eyes were seeing. It feels to me as well that this book with the, you know, the Zebaldian kind of photography and the yeah. footnotes and stuff, that, that that's someone who's also informed your work, speaking a little bit more contemporarily. Yes. Well, I suppose there's the weird coincidence that I live in the town that Zebald first moved to when he came to East Anglia. He, when he moved from Germany, he lived and lectured at Manchester initially, but then moved to teach at the University of East Anglia. And he lived just up the road from me. So I kind of felt that was something that was kind of also slightly haunting the book. And I guess his kind of melancholic air fitted in with the atmosphere that I was probably going for. You know, I'd go for walks around the sort of the, the town I live in and just into the nearby countryside and think, well, there's echoes there of, I, I'm, is that the place that, he, that he's got a photo of? In The Emigrants, for instance, this kind of, there's a old country house a couple of miles away from where I live. And there's a picture in The Emigrants of this walled garden. And I'm sure it's taken there, for instance. And then I ended up finding that a friend of mine owns the house that Sabold first rented and lived in. And actually, lots of the characters in one section of the emigrants are based upon her her relatives. So I talk about that quite a lot. And that was kind of quite an interesting bit of original research that I kind of came upon, actually, who, who the real Dr. Selwyn was. And so that was, you know, that just seemed kind of too good to pass up on. But Sabald himself, I do remember when he had his car crash, which again is not very far from where I live. That was, I mean, I remembered hearing about this. It was not long after I'd moved to Norwich. And I didn't really know who he was, but, you know, I obviously saw all of the, the outpourings of, of sadness in the press about this great literary figure who lived in Norwich. And I guess that was my introduction to him then at that point. 
We've been sort of in and around ghosts and sort of spectres and things. And in the the book, you you mentioned sort of the at one point around the Wicker Man, you mentioned the ingredients that make the Wicker Man what it is. And one of them, which doesn't work for everyone, but really works for you, is the kind of the, the weird soundscapes and and music and so on. Yeah. And I suppose I was just drawn to the idea of the ingredients that make anything good. And specifically for you then, as an avid reader and watcher of all things horror, what is the thing that makes the best ghost tales and things for you? What, what needs to um, be in there? Well, I suppose it's, for me, it would be an overall atmosphere, which is a slightly woolly answer. But I'm not big into, you know, with films, say, I, I, I prefer the more kind of psychological or, I mean, there's a, there's a film I talk about, one of my favourite horror films, The Night of the Demon which is a 1950s black and white movie that's based on M.R. James's short story, Casting the Runes. And it's it's a fantastic film. It, it changes quite a lot from the original, but actually many of those changes, I think, work really well. But one thing, and I think there was an argument between the director and the studio, the studio essentially did the classic thing of wanting the audience to see the monster. So you see this useless kind of demon at the beginning of the film, which is obviously just this sort of model that looks a bit like a rubbish dinosaur. I mean, actually, they've got some quite good effects where you see, see these breaths of cloud and smoke kind of appearing in the night sky, which is quite effective. But you kind of think you didn't need to see the demon, I, I would argue, and lots of other people would argue. So I kind of prefer the the subtle thing where where you don't quite know what you're looking at. You know, is that what's that thing you glimpse out of the corner of your eye? So, but yeah, it's it's definitely for me. I and mean, I think lots of those storytellers that I talk about, I, I just like the the settings, the location. Um, that to me is a, a big part of it, I'd say. The, the Scottish crime writer, uh, Denise Miner, said this lovely thing in an interview once, which was about one of her books, that the atmosphere that she wanted it to create for the reader was a bit like a conspirator, you know, someone conspiratorially in a bar yeah. whispering this whole book. The, the book itself was was sort of whispering itself in this kind of quite conspiratorial way. I just wonder, as as a writer of, of this book, or indeed of any of your books, well, let's say Ghostland, what's that book doing to the reader or what do you hope it is doing to the reader i'm hoping that it's kind of gradually i can't quite remember the quote but there's a there's a line that mr james kind of mentioned about gradually allowing the malevolent thing to kind of rear its ugly head and that was kind of what i was trying to do i I sort of obviously hint quite early on about the other story that's going on i guess my own kind of story that's happening in, in parallel with the lives of all these other kind of haunted writers and i just wanted to kind of let that kind of emerge briefly so that you know something's coming but as a reader you know then it will it will build to that and i suppose that was that was i guess my modus operandi to gradually build to we know that this thing at some point is going to emerge and that was what I was attempting to do. Thank you so much to to Ed for chatting to us. I heartily recommend Ghostland. It's a really beautiful memoir. And don't just believe me, Philip Hoare said of it that it was a uniquely strange and wonderful work of literature. So you've got a treat in store. As Ed was saying, there's something very special and unique about visiting a place where an author or an artist has made something or where they've lived and died. And that's that's something that the festival company are extremely excited by for the region of Dumfries and Galloway, this idea of literary tourism and what that can mean for a place. So in this final part of the show, we talk to Kathleen Crony of Mostly Ghostly, uh, whose work is exactly that in creating experiences around place. And we're joined as well by festival director Adrian Turpin on what that project means for the festival and for the region. 
listen, tell us. I, I imagine that some of our listeners may well have already been spooked by you lot on Mostly Ghostly, but, but if, for, for the uninitiated or the feardy cats like me, could you tell us just a bit more about the, the company and the work that you do? We're established in 2008. We began as almost like a paranormal research project. So we would go and visit a lot of different locations throughout Dumfries and Galloway and beyond. We would research the history of the locations and try to establish through a variety of different means whether or not they might be haunted. But that Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly developed into, you know, the love of history came to the forefront and we decided to research and develop a ghost walk for Dumfries Town Centre. We felt it was an area that really was in need of some positivity in terms of the regeneration aspect and trying to highlight different aspects, unfamiliar aspects of the town to visitors and local people alike. So we set about putting the ghost walk together and since then have developed a a range of ghost and local history tours across the region. When you were sort of in the early days and doing the paranormal research and stuff, who, what, what kind? Say a bit more about that, if you would. What, what's that like, and who, who were you doing that for? Well, it was really fascinating. It's something I'd always been interested in since I was a wee girl. Always been fascinated in ghost stories, and meeting the right people certainly helped. And Joan and Mary, my colleagues, are both fascinated by the supernatural as well. So we came together and we we set about trying to source interest in locations locally and the stories behind the hauntings, and then to sort of go and spend time in these locations and uh, see if we could come up with anything. The Theatre Royal was our very first official investigation in Dumfries. In addition to being the oldest theatre in Scotland, arguably it is its most haunted. But when you say most haunted, what what sightings made it be that you guys got in there? What was what was going on? Oh sure, um, um, well, a lot of people. The, the most famous uh, alleged haunting at Theatre Royal is the Green Lady, and uh, she's been witnessed by a number of staff visitors to the Theatre Royal. But what kind of made it stand out for us that particular building is that it isn't just characterised by one haunting. There are other incidents of activity. For example, the control room was discovered having been ransacked on one occasion, which may or may not link to poltergeist activity. There's been um, what we might call recording type apparitions witnessed, where people have heard, for example, the sound of footsteps across a wooden floor, and uh, they don't actually see anything as such, but they just hear the sound. And it got us wondering, is this like a replay from the past, maybe a path someone once used to walk? So there's lots of different types of activity going on in different areas of the theatre and it really did spark our imagination, I have to say. Oh gosh, I bet. Is that quite rare then in a given building? I mean, it, would would you typically find a spirit to be in a particular place rather than in all different bits of a site, if you see what I mean? Well, yeah, I guess it depends on the story. Perhaps the, the spirit in question might have really loved the place or, or conversely had a really tragic episode at a location and they are perhaps linked more closely to that location because of it. I mean, you may find somebody like a ghost might wander around different areas of a building or might be housed, earthbound as some people call it, in in one particular spot. It's very variable. You can never be totally sure, but the theatre, perhaps because there's been so many folk have visited there, performed some great people with huge personalities. You wonder if perhaps some of that dramatic side has left a trace behind an echo. Oh, absolutely. You would think a theatre would be a great place for for finding spirits, I would say, in those wings. To talk a wee bit then more about the the tours that that you guys put on, how do you begin to put a tour like that together and how do you choose your locations? That's one of the most fascinating parts of the process, really, getting into the research, spending lots of time at the local libraries, going through archives, speaking to people. 
research online and looking at the, the location, like in, for example, the Freestown Centre, there are so many evocative little closes and, you know, you've got your old prison site theatre, as I've just mentioned, and those sites often leap out at you and if there's a story already connected with them, fantastic. But if not, they can sometimes be used as a location that's just got the right atmosphere in which to share a really good ghost story. A lot of what we do is focused on the darker side of the history, the very poignant moving stories of those that were accused of witchcraft. Those are really haunting tales in a different way. It's like the ghosts of Dumfries's past, the, the, the past that it might prefer to forget. Um, and we feel these souls, it's important that they're remembered. You mentioned your team and so on, but I guess you've all got specialisms. What would your own sort of chief area of interest be, would you say, in it all? The crime and justice side really fascinates me. I've done a lot of research into the last public hangings in Scotland, eh, Mary Timney and Robert Smith in 1862 and 1868. Those two stories particularly stand out for me and the women accused of witchcraft, particularly the nine souls who were executed on the White Sands and Dumfries. What's the most unsettling thing that you personally have encountered? On a personal level, much as I absolutely love this subject, I've never seen a ghost. I've always wanted to, but it hasn't happened yet. But there is one location of recent Galloway in the Wigtonshire area, in fact, that always seems to send a shiver down the spine. And that is the long stretch of road that goes between Kirkinner and Garliston. And it is quite famously haunted by a number of different spirits. But a child has been seen on that road. And I remember some years ago eh, spending time there. We used to go and visit quite regularly. It's set, you know, you've got Kilstuer Forest in that area. So you've got the trees, you've got the sounds of the animals, you've got the little creeks and groans that you get late at night, and you've got these glorious tunnels of trees. And in the summertime, they're so full and lush, but in the winter, they're almost like skeletal fingers that entwine across the roads. It's one of those places that can play havoc with the imagination and the times we've visited there it is really quite an unsettling place beautiful different feeling by day but come nightfall you can be standing there in the dark in the woods and you're hearing all these sounds and you're familiar with the stories and something happens you hear something and it just it really sets your teeth on edge. It's one of those places. The heart is over me just hearing you talk about it, to be honest. I was such a scaredy cat anyway. <laughs> Adrian, you have worked with Mostly Ghostly with the festival. Could you say just first of all, Adrian, just a wee bit about how you work together as part of the festival? Well, well first of all, I should say that I know that road very very well. and It is quite creepy. I, I almost ran over a deer on that road a couple of years ago. <laughs> stopped about an inch from it as it leapt out of Kilstuer Wood. So so I like to think, you know, maybe it was maybe it was the, the body of a spirit within the deer. I don't know. Mostly Ghosty have, have been at the festival several times, I think, have always been a very kind of popular part of what we've done. But recently, last year, we took on a new project, which was looking at ways of developing tourism through literature. It's a European project involving partners from Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and from Finland. And as part of that, one of the things that we're doing is working with companies, organisations in Dumfries and Galloway to develop new literary tourism activities and products. And one of those is the wonderful Mostly Ghostly. We're going to be developing two new tours, actually, under the name of the Croc in the Frock. The, the idea is that it's going to be like a feast of ghostly tales, history, adventure and folklore. So we'll have the croc kind of bedecked in a rather quirky outfit and with the Peter Pan connection, of course, and really 
keen to encourage participants to help us to tell the stories as well using a variety of props and interactions. Mm, how fab. So it's kind of like collaborative storytelling. Yeah. There's a huge potential for literary tourism in the south of Scotland. And in some ways, there's a kind of argument that this part of the country is is part of the real heartland of Scotland's literature, one of the most literary regions, the south of Scotland in the UK. If you think about going across the country from, you know, Burns' birthplace, we've got the Book Town, we've got the new Children's Centre for, National Centre for Children's Literature in Dumfries, we've got Buchan, and then, you know, as we head over into the borders, we've got Abbotsford, you know, Sir Walter Scott's home, and that's leaving out, you know, Gavin Maxwell and Dorothy L. Sayers and all sorts of other figures. So we think that there is great potential to kind of attract particular kind of cultural tourism. Thanks very much to Adrian Turpin and thanks also especially to Kathleen Crony from Mostly Ghostly for joining us there. We're very excited to see what's going to come out of that very special collaboration. I'd like to thank all of our guests today for joining us from their spare rooms and their kitchen tables and their back gardens and it's, it's just such a treat to speak to everyone. So thank you to Karen Campbell joining us from Galloway. Thank you to Edward Parnell joining us from Wyndham in Norfolk and thank you very much to Kathleen Crony uh, joining us there from Dumfries and thank you especially to you joining us from wherever in the world you are don't forget there are lots of ways uh, for you to engage and join in with the festival from where you are there's tons of stuff going up on the website new pieces by people like Karen by Ken Ilgunas tons of wonderful stuff to enjoy there's the Wigtown Wednesdays with events beaming straight into your living room there's all sorts to join in with and do keep an eye there's new new pieces going up there all the time thank you to Billy Gifford for their kind support of this podcast and thank you to you for joining in from wherever you are we hope you'll join us again next week but for now take very good care of yourselves cheerio for now